The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Women of Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest this week is a former chess champion, economist, author and current Labour politician. Born in South East London, she won a British chess championship at the age of 14. She went on to study PPE at Oxford and read for a master's in economics at LSE. Before entering politics, she had a career as an economist, having worked for the Bank of England, the British Embassy and Halifax Bank of Scotland. But by 2010, she was elected Member of Parliament for Leeds West. A devoted member of the Labour Party, joining at just 16 years old, she was quickly seen as a rising star during Ed Miliband's leadership, but found herself on the backbenches during the Corbyn era. After the election in 2019, she said that Jeremy Corbyn can make all the excuses in the world about the mainstream media, about Brexit, about people not voting, but the biggest drag in this election was him. Under Keir Starmer's leadership, she's returned to the Labour front bench and has much nice things to say about the Labour leader, having been appointed as a shadow minister for the Cabinet Office and Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. My guest today is Rachel Reeves. Thank you for joining me today, Rachel. Did I get anything wrong in my introduction? Sounds about right. <laughs> Okay, great. That is a good start. Uh, now, on this podcast, we begin by asking everyone the same question, uh, which is, would you describe your childhood as a happy one? Yes, I I, I would describe it as happy. Yeah, I had a mum and dad who loved us and a little sister who I mainly loved. My parents got divorced when I was about seven or eight, but um, at parents' evenings and things like that, Teachers often didn't realise that mum and dad were split up because they always went to parents' evenings together and, you know, got on well. So, yeah, I I feel very fortunate um, in that respect. And your parents were both teachers, am I right to say? Yes. Was it a very very academic household? Lots of studying, no matter which house you were at? (laughs) So, they were both primary school teachers. My dad became a head teacher, I think, not long after I was born. And my mum was a special needs teacher and, and then later a classroom teacher. So, you know, they definitely cared about education. Most of their friends were teachers or worked in local government and stuff like that. So there was a sort of real, I guess, public service ethos. Uh, none of them came from teaching households. My dad's father worked in a, in a shoe factory and my mum's dad was a builder. So, you know, that we, they, didn't, they didn't come from that sort of background and, uh, and their, their own brothers and sisters didn't, you know, go into those sorts of professions. But yes, they definitely they met through teaching. They, they, they worked at the same school for a bit and definitely encouraged us to, to work hard and to respect our teachers. And you didn't go to the same school they taught at, did you? Well, I did actually for a bit. Oh no, that would be my nightmare. Yeah, it wasn't good. (laughs) My daughter now says, tell me about the stories when grandma had to um, work in your class. It was like, well, basically, I was so naughty that I had to be taken out and go and work in the library by myself because I didn't like calling her Mrs Reeves and, and respecting her authority in the classroom. So that was my... One of my rebellions, but yes. Yeah, so my mum taught. She, my mum taught at my primary school for a bit, but my my dad was certainly not our headmaster. 
Okay, at least that was only primary school. Uh, but was it still the case that if you're, if you're in the corridor and you see your mother walking along, you're like, oh, God, cramping my style? Yeah, there was one time when I was sitting outside the head teacher's office for having been naughty and my mum walked past. That was definitely a sort of, yeah. <laughs> now, I mentioned the introduction that you were a chess champion Now, ch- at the age of 14. Chess is very in vogue at the moment because everyone, I think, has watched The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Can you talk us through how you got into chess? Did your parents thrust that upon you? How did you come across? I'm thinking of all the the movie images right now. (laughs) Yeah, not not quite as glamorous, sorry. Uh, We had an amazing head teacher at primary school, Mr Hawkins, who was a a pretty good chess player himself. And he set up a a chess club at our South East London primary school. And pretty much everyone was was playing in, in tournaments against other schools. From when I... The first chess match I played in was when I was seven, and I think I was the second to bottom board in the school. And there were, I think it was 180 games played at the same time in our school hall against another school, also in the borough of Lewisham. And it was the biggest chess match I think, that had ever been played. And I got my pawn to the end of the board and turned it into a queen and then checkmated the boy from the other school. And after that, I was uh, I was hooked and carried on going to chess club. And then then our head teacher left, actually. He moved down to Somerset, which was really sad because he was such an inspirational head, not just for the chess, but he was just amazing. Um, he's been in touch, actually, a couple of times since I became an MP, which is really lovely. But my dad then decided, and my mum and dad, neither of them could really play um, chess. My mum can't play at all. I think my dad learned when we learnt. But he was keen that we carried on. So he found a chess club for us. And so on Friday evenings, when other kids were doing better things with their time, uh, he took me to this this chess club so I could carry on playing. And then I played for the county and in chess matches at weekends and stuff. So would you say there are more boys and girls in chess clubs as you go up the ranks? Or was it pretty even? Oh, it is massively male-dominated. Massively. And I, I remember, again, this was at my primary school and, you know, you get drawn for... If you're playing a chess tournament at a weekend as, in a, as a junior, you probably play six games during the course of the day. And you how, depending on how well you're doing, you'll be drawn against somebody. So if you win your first five games, you're going to play somebody else's one five games. Anyway, so I was drawn against this boy in the third round or something. And his friend walked past and said, oh, lucky you, you're playing a girl. That's going to be easy. And uh, you can imagine, Katie, <laughs> my response. <laughs> it just makes me angry now to think of it. So I was absolutely determined that I would win that game, and I did. But that was the the it was a, a real sexist attitude in in chess. I think it's you know still quite similar now. In fact, I've there's this brilliant charity called Chess in Schools and Communities, and the man who runs that I knew him when I played more seriously. And he set up this great charity. And again, when I became an MP and he went to like his local state school in Liverpool and then, you know, became an international chess master. And he set up this charity to get chess into more state schools. And he asked me whether I'd like to pilot up in West Leeds. And we did. And it's interesting, you know, because the whole class plays, it's the girls and the boys. But at the beginning, I go in and I'll play a simultaneous game against all of them at once. So they all have their chess sets set up and I go around and play a move and then move on to the next one. And at the beginning, I say, right, who thinks they're going to win? Who, who, who's, who's pretty good at chess here? And all the boys put up their hands. Yeah, we're really good. Really, really good. And all the girls just sit there and they won't they don't say that. And then actually, by and large, they're at least as good. Uh, I remember at one school, 
and the ones who lasted longer in the games were the were the, the the girls. But they they you know they don't have always necessarily the, the confidence and they don't have the role models. I mean, when I was playing chess, when I sort of got to about eleven or twelve, there were these three girls called the Polgar sisters, and they were Hungarian. And they were amazing, like the one girl, Judith, she was the, the best chess player ever for her age. And she was about three or four years older than me. And so whenever people said, you know, girls can't play chess, you'd be able to say, well, what about Judith Polgar? And that, you know, was sort of a, a good enough answer to shut them up usually. But no, it was very, very male dominated. And then a lot of girls dropped out because, you know, if you go along to these chess tournaments at the weekend and it's just a load of like, you know, weirdo boys, then, you know, a lot of girls wouldn't go back. And so, you know, there was fewer and fewer as we as, as we got older as well. And then when eventually did you decide that chess would not be your main hobby or, or focus? Well, I mean, I carried on playing in tournaments until I was maybe... 15 or something did you win money or just trophies just trophies <laughs> i'll go and find one <laughs> my dad my dad in a sort of way that's it's actually sort of... a chess podcast i don't know if you told you in advance <laughs> <laughs> they're all in the cupboard upstairs because my dad was clearing out the garage and wanted to get rid of them so uh yeah just for trophies my final chess question was just do you have a favorite chess move because everyone's been googling queen's gambit in terms of what that is and that's what you can maybe add to our vocabulary yes okay so i i used to play the sicilian defense which is white plays e4 and then black plays c5 which is the queen's bishop's pawn up two squares and etc and then the sicilian dragon defense was the one that i um tended to play moving away from chess sadly looking i suppose just before we talk into you know going on to your career you are now a Labour politician. Were you political from an early age? You joined the Labour Party quite early. Was it something your parents encouraged? So my, my earliest political memory was aged eight. It was in the 1987 general election. And girls at school were talking about who their parents were going to be voting for. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And so I went home and asked my dad and he put on the six o'clock news and he said, that's Neil Kinnock and that's who we vote for. And I think I, I, I told that story not long after I was first elected. And my dad said to me, that doesn't sound like a likely story. And I said, but, you know, you did vote for Neil Kinnock, Dad, didn't you? And he said, yes, but if it's true, it's the first time you've ever done anything I've told you to do. But I, I do. I remember that well. And then being interested in politics and, you know, watching the news sometimes and then became quite you know, I sort of I strongly, you know, part of it was just the, the time period we, we were in and, you know, the area I grew up in and, and, and my experience at schools. I mean, I said before, my mum was a special needs teacher, but in the sort of mid, late 80s, you know, there were huge cuts to, to special needs and, and schools budgets. So she became a class teacher. That was fine. You know, she still had a good job, but you know, it meant that a lot of the children who needed extra support weren't given it. And, it. and it also meant that everybody in the class, you know, instead of getting support for those who needed it, the teacher had to you know, you know, cope with 30 kids of all different abilities without the ones who most needed it getting extra help. So it was bad for everybody in the, in the class. And then I went, I went to secondary school. You know, our sixth form were, was two prefab huts in the playground. Uh, there were another, enough textbooks to go round. Our library was turned into a classroom because there wasn't enough room for all the kids in the school. And, you know, it was really, it was tough. You know, I did really well at school, but I, I did feel that it was all stacked against you, really. And, you know, the vast majority of people at my secondary school didn't go on to university. 
And I just felt, what sort of signal does it send to people about how much we care about their education? If you haven't got the textbooks you need, you haven't got a space to learn in. Remember, loads of people, you know, certainly at my school, would not have had their own bedroom to do homework in, would not have had space at, at home. And so I felt very strongly that the government that we had in the 80s and 90s, you know, all the time I was growing up, basically, they didn't really care about schools like mine, communities like mine, and I wanted to do something about it. And, and for me, that something was was joining the Labour Party and, and campaigning. And, uh, you know, I got my first sort of go at that in, in 1997. Yeah, just a, a year or so after I joined the Labour Party. When you joined the Labour Party at 16, did your schoolmates find it a little bit weird that you were getting into politics? Or was it actually quite normal? Student politics, depending on where you are, can have a bit of a reputation. <laughs> oh, no, it definitely wasn't normal at school. You know, it was it was 1997, so there was a sort of a feeling of change, of of excitement. Yeah, so you know, but certainly, I'd say I was the only the only one in in my year at school who was joining a political party, and a bit like going to the sort of like the the the, the hall for the chess club on Friday evening. I was now going to a, a, a drafty hall on Wednesday evenings for my branch meeting. So general pioneer. Now, uh, you mentioned your state school. You went on to study PPE at Oxford. That is obviously seen as one of the degrees that is hardest to get into and also one of the universities that's hardest to get into. So did your school actively encourage you to go to Oxbridge? And, and why did you pick PPE? Were you thinking of being a politician? Because it is seen as a politician's degree. So when I was at school, I thought I would do maths at university. That was always my favourite subject. But I think by the time I got to the end of my A-levels, I felt I'd probably reached my limits on my maths. And I decided that, you know, to do something maybe a bit broader. And so I did PPE, mainly economics. And then I went on to do the economics for the master's as well. But two years before I went to Oxford, the first two girls from my school ever applied to go to Oxford. And one of them got in. And I remember at the assembly, it was a massive big deal. And our head teacher did an assembly about these two girls and we had to basically be thinking of them all day and I was I was thinking them all day that I really hoped that they would get in I even remember their names but also it made me think well maybe I could do that in a couple of years time because I'm doing well in my exams and in my classes and if two girls in our school could go to Oxford maybe I could as well and I honestly this I was must have been 16 at the time I'd never thought about that I thought I'd go to university because my dad had said go to university and go my parents hadn't been to university they'd gone to teacher training college but at that time you know it was a two-year course it didn't lead to a degree my dad said go to university move away from home and you know have that experience and that was you know his advice I guess to me but suddenly I thought well why shouldn't I try for a university like that and then one of the girls did get in and she got in to do PPE at the college I went to new college And so two years later, I applied to do PP at New College and I applied to do it there because I thought, well, they've taken the girl from my school before and no one else from my school has been to Oxford. So, you know, maybe they would look favourably on a state school girl from South London as well. So I applied to that college. But yeah, I mean, I don't know what she's doing now, but she had a big impact on me, that girl and that head teacher as well, who, who told us about those opportunities that were out there for us. And how did you find Oxford? Did it, what surprised you? Did, was it, uh, I mean, coming from the school you did and and London, was it a whole new world? It was really. I loved it and I felt it was such a privilege to be there. 
But there's a lot of money. Uh, 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 so a lot of students are very well off. I, I found that sometimes a bit difficult. You know, there are lots of things that, you know, they're quite sort of expensive to do, all these sort of parties and stuff. And I didn't really do a lot, a lot of that sort of stuff. But I mean, I made my best friends in life at Oxford. There's seven of us. And for the last 20 years, every January, February, we go away for the weekend. And we've done that for the 20 years since we, we left. So, you know, my closest friends in the world I made at, at college. And, and, and so, you know, it was, it was an absolutely brilliant experience, wonderful experience uh, for me. I didn't, I guess, sort of do some of the normal, I didn't do the, the union and, and things like that. I did go, I think, in my first week to sort of try it out. But sort of debating for the sake of it and just sort of taking a side, you know, without believing in it, I found that really hard to do. So I didn't get involved in that. I did a bit of stuff with the student union and a bit of stuff with the Labour Club. But my, my friendships were really formed at college and through my, my friendships there. And just briefly on that, I, I know what you mean about sometimes some of these universities, you suddenly meet people from the world you didn't quite realise existed or, or have very different backgrounds. Did you find for your close friends to this day, they were similar state school background or was that much of a mix? There's a mixture. We're, we are a mixture. You know, we are all uh, sort of, you know, liberal lefties, I guess. You know, but you know, we are we are a real a, a mixture. Went to different types of schools, different parts of the country. You know, actually, you know, many of us have gone into work in sort of public service in in different ways. Yeah, doctor, a civil servant, a couple of lawyers. Yeah, so a, a real a real mixture. But those sort of yeah friendship, those bonds, they're important thing. Well, my family is really really important to me, and my friendships are really important to me. And any famous Oxford alumni also in your year that would you know to set the scene? Were there any you know fellow Westminster people there at the time? Annalisa Dodds was a year oh. or two above me. She was at St Hilda's. Guest on this podcast, Emma Reynolds and Rushanara Ali. I think we're both there at the same time as 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 me. So yeah, I guess yeah. A real Labour Party. Now you graduate from Oxford, and at that point, did you decide that you wanted to get a job? Ultimately, not we're talking about PPE, but get a job focused on the economy and and your skills you'd learn on in that part. Economics was my 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 favourite of the three subjects, and the one that I. Yeah, I I wanted to sort of pursue a career in. And I had a great economics tutor, Chris Allsop, who, yeah, he's sort of a macroeconomist. And he he was very supportive of me and, and gave me good advice. And he'd worked at the Treasury and at the Bank of England and at the OECD. And, and he said to me to, to go to the bank. And that would, I think he said it's the finishing school for economists. And, and that was his recommendation. So I, I applied, applied for investment banking jobs as well. And I applied for the Bank of England and I applied for the Government Economic Service. And in the end, I had a, a choice um, between Goldman Sachs and the Bank of England. And I, I chose not to be rich. Uh, so I, I, went, I went to the bank straight after university. And then ultimately you're at the Bank of England. So are you on Threadneedle Street? Yes, yeah. The old lady of Threadneedle Street. And during that time, when do you start to think, actually, I am at the finishing school, but... I want to move on and, and do politics. Did you feel as though you were you wanted to do something more fulfilling? What was it made the, that made you want to do the switch? So I was at the bank for quite a while, and I loved it. I really, I really did. And yeah, the, I, you know, they they sponsored me to go and get my masters at the LSE, which was obviously yeah an amazing opportunity as well. I worked mainly in international economics at the bank. So first of all, covering the Japanese economy at a time when. They had zero interest rates and massive quantitative easing, so it didn't seem that relevant back in 2000. But eight years later, 
obviously with the financial crisis and our QE turned out to be incredibly useful to understand that sort of economics. And then I became one of the US economists at the bank and I had the opportunity to go and work in Washington for a couple of years, which was great, incredibly exciting. You know, I was still in my early 20s. I traded my sort of little flat in Elephant and Castle for, you know, the British Embassy and the life of a diplomat for a couple of years. And, and that was that was brilliant. What's a Washington DC lifestyle like? It is a bubble. Right? I mean, it's more than a bubble, more of a bubble than the Westminster bubble. You know, most people in Washington are there for short periods of time. In, in the, certainly in the sort of the bit where the, all the diplomats are, you know, the diplomats, the politicians, the think tanks, the lobbyists, the, the IMF, the World Bank. You're there for a, a few years and then you move on to your next posting. And so people want to live life to the full whilst they're there and, you know, experience everything that Washington and America has to offer. You end up, I mean, I ended up sort of hanging out with this sort of small group of people of sort of British expats who were journalists, World Bank, IMF, the embassy. And we had a great time, you know, travelled all the way, all across America. Yeah, lots of bars and nightclubs and restaurants. And we had a fantastic time. We had a, a great time there. And, and then I, I came back and I did my master's and I, I wanted to come back and, 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 and do that. And I went back to the Bank of England after that. But yeah, the bank gave me amazing opportunities. My first boss at the bank actually was Andrew Bailey, who's of course now the um, the governor of the bank. He was a great boss, really inspiring as well. Yeah, good person to know. <laughs> yeah, um, Eddie George was the, the governor when I started and then Mervyn King. And I got to know Mervyn reasonably well when he came out to Washington. And my old tutor, who I mentioned before, Chris Alsop, he was then on the Monetary Policy Committee and he came out to Washington when I was there as well. So it was a great opportunity to to work in DC for that time. And what made me then sort of switch all of that, I think it was, politics was always a hobby really for me, if that makes sense. So it was something I did at weekends and it's something I did in my holidays. So I'd always take a week off to go to Labour Party conference, for example. And at weekends, I would organise the leafleting rounds in the ward that I lived in. And, you know, I would go to the Fabian conference and, and stuff like that. So it was it was my hobby. But I guess increasingly, I thought, you know, I've always believed that you've got to sort of use your time in this world well. And I, I want to make a difference. And I was making a difference at the bank. But, you know, as a sort of an economist, you know, I, I felt quite a long way from the centre of the action. And I, I wanted to make a difference directly. And, and I've always thought that politics is the way to change things. And I decided in 2005 to give it a go. And I stood in Bromley and Chislehurst, which is the seat that I was then living in. It's where my dad lives. And it's one of the safest tourist seats in, in the country. But I thought, well, let me see what it's like. Because I'd never, you know, I'd, I'd always worked with spreadsheets on econ- econometric models and stuff. I thought, I'm going to give this a go and see what I, see how it goes. And I loved it. I really did. I really enjoyed the campaigning, the hustings, stuff that I'd you know never experienced uh, before. Public speaking was something really that I hadn't done before that point. And I then resolved that at the next election, I wasn't going to stand in Bromley again. I was going to try and find a, a, a seat if they would have me where Labour had a bit more chance. And then in, in 2007, so just a couple of years later, actually, I was selected as the Labour candidate in, in Leeds West. And by that point, I was living up in, in Yorkshire. I'd, I'd got a job working for Halifax Bank of Scotland and, and was living in Leeds and got selected. And then I had a three year wait until the election. 
and then became the MP. And entering Parliament, was there anything particular that surprised you, in a way, from being interested in the Labour Party so young? I suppose you would have had ideas about what it would be like to be a politician there? So by the time of the election, I felt I could be a really good constituency MP because I'd had a sort of two-and-a-half-year apprentice apprenticeship, really, with my predecessor, John Battle, who was great. And, you know, he sort of took me around... Uh, on, on Fridays and at weekends to events in the constituency and I was already like running local campaigns and, and, and things. But I, I I was living up in Leeds and I'd never worked in, in Parliament before. And despite the fact that I'd been in the party a long time, I didn't really know very many MPs. So it was totally new for me, the, the Westminster uh, life. I think it's really good in a way, it didn't always feel like it at the time, but really good in a way to be selected such a time before the election because I've really felt embedded and, and knowing the work that I needed to do locally by the time I was elected so that I could really throw myself in in Westminster and um, although Labour was massively depleted in 2010 there was a big new intake of, of Labour MPs many of whom became good friends of, of, of mine and you know we navigated that new world together but it was a real new experience for me but I quickly, you know, I, I got elected onto the Business Select Committee, got involved in the leadership campaign for, for Ed Miliband, and then, you know, got promoted through the front bench. And as you uh, touch on, you're very much a rising star, promoted very quickly. So I suppose, what was it like in the sense of you're working under Ed Miliband, you've backed him early on, it, I think it's within six months you have a shadow a shadow role, um, having only been in Parliament, you know, for a very short short amount of time. And what's the energy like then? Because you spoke about earlier, you know, Tony Blair, 97. Do, do you feel like you're on the beginning of something a bit like that? Or is it instantly harder work in terms of where you are in the opposition, David Cameron? Well, it's, it's sort of... You know, in, in 2015 and 17 and 19, when we lost those elections and new MPs would come in and they'd be all really excited. And, and I, I was just like, you know, utterly depressed because it was another election we'd lost. And I was probably one of those really annoying people in 2010 who came in really excited, whereas all the, you know, long-standing Labour MPs were like, this is absolutely grim. We've lost all these seats. We're out of power. Loads of my friends have lost their seats. And we were like, oh, this is so exciting. What select committee are we going to get elected onto? So... <laughs> <laughs> a sort of yeah note to my former self like don't be so annoying so it did feel like there was a real energy and I was involved in Ed's leadership campaign and after being in government I guess for sort of 13 years and losing a lot of really good talented MPs in 2010 and others standing down Ed was looking to promote and bring in new MPs into his 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 team and that was brilliant I think probably I look back at my now almost 11 years in, in, in Parliament. You know, I, it's, I did it the, the opposite way around, I guess, to what most people would do. Most people would spend their first few years on the back benches and then go on to the front bench. I did it the other way around. And actually, I learned a huge amount from my time on the back benches, which maybe might have served me better if I had done that earlier on. But I felt between 2010 and 2015, perhaps we could... We could get back in in five years. I really, you know, I know in, with hindsight, everyone's like, that's ridiculous. Labour was never going to win in 2015. Ed was never going to get elected as prime minister. But that's not how it felt from where I was. I think we may say that, but you can always dig out articles by journalists too, which might suggest we change opinion. I, I like the quote, I think it was to the New Statesman, where you said, 
I was in the shadow cabinet, it was great. I just felt like I was on an upward escalator and I thought we were gonna win the 2015 election. I mean, it's a very honest quote, because as you say, everyone now says, oh, that's mad, Ed Miliband was never going to win. But remember, there was plenty of calculations in terms of polling that suggested this was by far the most likely outcome. A Tory majority was near impossible for David Cameron. So I, I just wanna, when do you start to realize it wasn't gonna happen? Was that on election night? And what does that come down like when you think you're stepping into something and all of a sudden, actually, you're almost in disarray. Yeah, so I was eight months pregnant in the 2015 election. So I was sort of, I was massive and tired by the time we got to election day. But I've always been a big Labour doorstep campaigner. So I was out all day knocking on doors and then ordered a pizza, watched the exit poll from my living room. And I think about 15 minutes later, I just sort of collapsed in bed. I was just absolutely exhausted. And then my husband woke me up and said, how important is none eaten? And I said, quite important. He said, you've lost it really badly. <laughs> I was like, thanks for waking me up for that. Uh, thanks, love. <laughs> and then Leeds, I love Leeds, but we declare our results pretty late. Right? So about five o'clock, I rock up maybe a bit earlier at the Leeds Arena, I think it was in 2015, and there were no seats. I'm huge and exhausted, sitting on the floor at the back. Loads of people are crying because they thought they were just about to be MPs or their husband, wife, employer was about to become an MP. So it's absolutely grim. And I was, I mean, look, I was really upset. I was, yeah, I was really upset. I, I, I probably was the last person who 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 saw what was happening happen, and yeah, it was it did it was a sort of you know a, a grief for 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 me to to come to terms with, but you know in a way, you know a month later I had a new baby and you know some time away, which was probably much needed. What happens next is well known, which is that the Labour Party elects Jeremy Corbyn to be leader. For the next few years, it's a really testing period, lots of party splits. But from your own personal experience, it feels as though you obviously went from being in a situation where a rising star, brink of government, to perhaps in a way being seen as on the unfashionable wing of the party. Did you begin to feel like a persona non grata in the party? Because I think there was a sense that you were centrist and very different to Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, so, I mean, as I sort of said before, I, I threw my heart, I threw everything into the 2015 election. And by the time of the leadership election in September 2015, I, it was time for me to sort of step back for, for a bit. And like I said before, I think, you know, you have to... You know, use your time well, and, uh, and and I did do that on the on the back benches with the stuff I did on the select committee and and some of the writing that I've I've, I've done over the last few years, but yeah, it was look, it was really hard. I mean, I love the Labour Party. I've been a member now for twenty five years, and you know, I went from being at the centre of it and uh, and being in the mainstream to suddenly being on the outside and and actually, you know, a lot of people very critical of, of, of my role in, in Ed Shadow Cabinet. And I found that very hard, you know, people saying, you know, you're a red Tory and, you know, why don't you just go and join the Tories? And I found that very difficult because, you know, I sort of wanted to shout, but I'm Labour, I'm like Labour through and through. And people who joined five minutes ago questioning my right to be in the party that, 
put so much into. So I did find it very hard and, and you know, maybe took it more personally than perhaps I should have done. But I did I did find um, particularly those sort of early years off of the front bench quite difficult in the way that I was seen by others in in the party and it wasn't the way I saw myself and and I didn't think was was I didn't think well does is politics fair but it didn't feel fair to me. Keir Starmer then becomes Labour leader and you're appointed a senior position in his shadow cabinet. I was wondering what do you think having had that experience you know of being in the shadow cabinet then being the backbenchers what do you now do differently coming back to his shadow cabinet role? I think the main thing is that I had five years to think about what I wanted to achieve and what I really believed in. And in a way, the the five years that I was on the front bench, we were rushing from one intervention to another. You know, there wasn't much time to stop and, and think. And that was something that I was able to to address during those years on the on the back benches. And so you know, I, I wrote some some pamphlets, the everyday economy, everyday work, you know, sort of setting out, I guess, a sort of a political economy for Labour and a, a way of, of approaching politics and economics about what matters in people's lives and, and, and focusing a, a political strategy around that. So, you know, I talk about the importance of family, of work and, and the places that we, we live, which I think during the pandemic have absolutely been seen as the things that are central to all of our, our lives and give our lives meaning. And also the work that I did on the, on the Select Committee, I guess, you know, particularly the work that I did around the, the collapse of, of Carillion, gave me a new purpose, I think, of, of what I really believed in and what I wanted to change in the country and in society. And so I feel like a more a more fully formed politician, thinker than last time round. So, yeah, I feel like I've, I've used that time well to develop as a person and as a politician. It's clearly very tough being in opposition, I think particularly when you're up against a government which has an 80-seat majority. And we've seen in recent weeks lots of criticism of Keir Starmer and, and Labour generally, media, some in the party, and the sense of, you know, oh, they're not doing enough. And then the people say, oh, the shadow cabinet aren't out there enough. What what do you make of it? I mean, do you think it's actually, you, you spoke about how previously in perhaps your first role under Ed Miliband, you were doing you know, lots of running around. Do you feel actually it's more about, you know, important interventions, quality rather than quantity. What do you say to these critics saying, oh, we don't know who the shadow cabinet are? Uh, well, I mean, first, first of all, I mean, you know, in the 11 years that I've been an MP now, all of it's been in opposition. So, you know, that's all I know. And that's not what I went into politics to do. I mean, it is, you know, I went, remember going into a primary school once and the head teacher said, oh, who knows what Rachel Reeves does? And someone says, oh, she's an MP. And someone else says, isn't she a shadow? I was like, yes, that's exactly what I am. I'm a shadow. (laughs) One day I'll come out into the light and actually be able to do things myself rather than shadowing what someone else is doing. So what I would say to the sort of critics, I'm not going to make excuses. If we're not cutting through enough, we need to do more to cut through. But I would say that I've been doing quite a lot of phoning for the local elections in, in my patch. People want the Labour Party to, to be constructive. They want the government to succeed. We're in an odd position of being an opposition party that wants the government to succeed because failure to, to tackle coronavirus and protect us is, is disastrous for, for all of us and, and everything we, we care about. And so, you know, the form of opposition over the last year has been very different 
from the form of opposition you would want or expect or need in the other you know, nine or so years that I've been in, in Parliament. And that probably does mean that you're not landing as many punches. But I don't think that's what people want from the Labour Party now. I also think that a series of, you know, small interventions on, you know, an assortment of, of, of topics isn't what is needed. You know, Labour have now lost four elections in a row and we've just gone through a pandemic which has taken more people. Yeah, I mean, 120,000 people and, and, and counting have now died. Labour have can't just think that, you know, making some speeches and making some policy announcements, policy announcements, I just don't think that's what's going to win us the election in 2024. There are some deeper factors at play for why Labour keeps losing. Some deeper factors at play for why in the 120-something years of Labour's existence, we've only had three leaders who have won us majority governments. You know, it's hard for Labour to win elections. If it was if it was anything else, we would have won more of them more frequently. And we wouldn't have had so many leaders who, in the end, have gone down to failure. We haven't won an election since 2005. So I think it is right that we spend some time trying to work out how we can build that broad-based coalition that can get us back in. And that means us understanding the condition of the country. It means us understanding the people and the communities that we want to represent and aspire to represent. And then it means having some, 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 a bold vision with policies. But if we think that we can jump straight to those policy conclusions, I think that would be arrogance of the highest order, to be honest. Now... I've taken up plenty of your time, so I just want to end on two quick questions, slightly lighter. One is, there, there's a lot of Labour in your family. Your sister and her husband are both Labour MPs. Uh, your husband is a former speechwriter to Gordon Brown. Do you have many friends who are Tories? You mentioned your liberal friends from university. How many Conservative friends would you would you count in your circle? Um, yes, I've definitely got um, Conservative friends. One of my um, um, closest friends is um, the former Conservative MP, Seema Kennedy, and we co-chaired the Joe Cox Commission on Loneliness together. Yes, and she, well, in fact, actually, Joe taught me that we have more in common than that which divides us. And my friendship with Seema is one of the most important ones that I've, I've had in politics. And even though she's no, no longer an MP, yeah, she's a, a, a friend and a wonderful person. Does that develop in the aftermath of what happened to Joe? Or So... I made the speech in Parliament after Joe died and I said it now falls on all of our shoulders to take forward Joe's work. And then I went down to the members' cloakroom to get my bag to go back up to Leeds. And Seema came up to me, I'd never met her before, and said, oh, I was working with Joe on this work about loneliness and we're looking for somebody. I'm looking for somebody to, to co-chair it so I can take it forward. Would you do that? And I thought, I, I don't know you. I don't know anything about loneliness. I'm not really sure about this. So I said, oh, well, you know, let me um, have a think and I'll drop you an email. And then about half an hour later, I got a text message from Joe's former researcher, Ruth, and it said, oh, Seema says that you're interested in doing this work on loneliness. That's brilliant. I really look forward to working with you. I was thinking, oh, my goodness. Then by the time I was on the train up to Leeds, I got another message from Kirsty O'Neill, who was one of Joe's good friends. And it said, 
Joe's family will be absolutely delighted that you've agreed to co-chair the Loneliness Commission. And I thought, you know, Joe's ability to get people to do things lives on. And through SEMA, Joe's force um, was still at, at play. And it was a wonderful thing to do. It was, it was wonderful because it was taking forward Joe's work. It was wonderful because it's such an important issue. And actually, during this pandemic, the crisis of loneliness, I think, has become more apparent to all of us. But actually, on a personal level, for me getting to know Seema and working with her meant a huge amount to me. And yeah, and as, as, as you know, I lost Joe, but um, I made a very close friend in Seema. That's really nice. And then the final question is just when we ask everyone on this podcast, which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given, whether or not you took it or you told them to get lost? I, I guess I'd come back to the sort of the chess thing, really. I, 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 plenty of, of people sort of, you know, you know, why do you want to go and do that? Why do you want to spend your... You know, your weekends playing chess and, you know, girls don't play chess. But I persevered. I broke through in what was, you know, a very male-dominated world. And I think that's taught me lots of lessons for the future, maybe including how to win. Maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll translate that for Labour one day. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Katie.